Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Professor John Mearsheimer is one of the most famous international relations scholars in the world. He's known as being part of the realist school. We'll talk about what that means. We did a long and detailed discussion with him about Ukraine and his somewhat controversial views back last summer. And I'm delighted to say he is back on the channel now, joining us from Chicago to talk about Israel as well as Ukraine. Professor Mearsheimer, welcome. I'm glad to be here, Freddie. Thank you for inviting me back. So I'm going to come straight out with it and express a a hesitation, Professor, because I've read your piece this morning about Israel. And I suppose what I notice is that where you were so cool-headed, hard-nosed and realistic about the Ukraine-Russia great power struggle, the tone is very much more moralistic and more, I guess, outraged when talking about Israeli actions in Gaza. Do you do you feel differently about this conflict? Oh, I just used my critical faculties to analyze what the Israelis are doing in Gaza in the same way that I analyzed the, uh, uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, I think there's an important moral dimension to what is happening in the Israeli uh, Hamas conflict that needed to be discussed. And uh, I laid out my views in the Substack piece very clearly, but I didn't think that I was up on my high horse and I was preaching or anything of that sort. No, as I tried to make clear in the piece, I just wanna be on the record with regard to what the Israelis are doing uh, in Gaza so that at some point down the road, when historians look back at what's happening, uh, it's clear where I stood on the issue. I suppose if there are critics, if there are Mearsheimer critics watching, and they are plenty in number, so uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get a few, they might say, where was the same level of outrage about the Russian invasion into Ukraine, the details of the horrors there? There were, if one was looking for Uh, humanitarian horrors, there were plenty of them in that example. Also, finding voices saying completely outrageous, inhuman things, that was also possible in that conflict. And then in this one, you could do the similar job, in fact, probably more effective on the Hamas side of this conflict. You know, there are the the horrors there, uh, what took place on October the 7th, and some of the statements you can find from supporters of that side, are also uh, awful to comprehend and to, to witness, but you, you don't seem to be focusing on them so much. So if, if someone is 
criticizing you from, from that basis, how would you respond? You're basically saying that I can't focus on Israel and criticize Israel behave, Israel's behavior in Gaza because of atrocities that were committed in Ukraine and because of what happened on October 7th. Isn't that the case? I'm looking for a, a consistency of approach across these. I, I, and I guess... I, I don't have to provide a consistency of approach. I'm focusing on what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. I'm not comparing what happened in Gaza with what happened on October 7th and what's happened in Ukraine. Those are different issues. You could write a piece like that. But the, I'm sorry, there's nothing wrong with me analyzing what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, period. Okay, so let's get theoretical then, in a way, because you're so famous for this realist school. And exactly what that means, it would be great to elucidate for our our viewers. But how does the, the realist principle apply to the Israel-Gaza conflict? I mean, could you say, for example, that Israel, if it's going to act rationally in its own interests, needed to respond dramatically to the atrocities on October the 7th. And that, in a way, could be seen as quite a realist response. I'm not criticizing the Israelis for responding to what Hamas did on October 7th. Of course, the Israelis were going to respond. What I'm criticizing is how they responded. And my argument is that it made no sense militarily uh, to launch a campaign where they're basically massacring huge numbers of Palestinians and starving Palestinians. Uh, there's no military utility to this. And from a moral point of view, it's abhorrent. Had you been in charge or had, had Israel been listening to your advice, what, what would you have recommended as a, a better response? Well, I think there's no question that the Israelis, from their perspective, had to respond to what uh, Hamas did on October 7th. But I don't think that they had to respond the way they have responded. And I think that their response could have been much more selective and little emphasis should have been placed on punishing the civilian population. The emphasis should have been on going after Hamas, not going to great lengths to punish the Palestinian uh, population in ways that we are watching now. And so the reports of Hamas deliberately putting centers of operations in civilian centers, under hospitals, etc. How do you respond to that? Does that not complicate the idea that they, they could have done a surgical strike that avoided any civilian casualties? Well, there's no question that Hamas is integrated in all sorts of ways into the civilian population in Gaza. How could it be otherwise? I mean, God, uh, Hamas is not going to uh, uh, build military bases far away from the civilian population so that they present the Israelis with a big fat target. What they have done is they have built tunnels underneath the ground all over Gaza which is a way of protecting themselves uh, from Israeli bombing campaigns. Uh, it makes perfect sense from their point of view. But in doing that, there's no way they're not going to be uh, bound up with the local population. And so one can are, make are you saying you don't think it's a deliberate strategy then? You think it's just an accident of the small geographical area? You, you don't think Hamas are deliberately putting centers of 
strategic importance in the middle of civilian centers. I don't see much evidence of that. I mean, the Israelis, you know, made the case that this one hospital uh, was a, a, a site of a major uh, command and control post for Hamas and underneath was the sort of center of a huge network of tunnels. But once they got into the hospital and checked around, they did not find any significant evidence that supported that thesis. I thought they did uh, find tunnels directly from the floor of the hospital. I don't remember that being the case. Uh, I. I I mean, there's so many stories on what they found in this hospital or that hospital or in the surrounding area near the hospital that it's hard to keep track of it. But uh, there's no evidence that uh, Hamas had a major headquarters and the center of a major um, series of tunnels underneath any one hospital. What I'm really keen to hear is, is what the correct application of your principles of international relations would be to this situation. So if you accept Israel as a, as a state and as a, an actor that will act in its own self-interests, and then you also you know, observe the situation in the countries around it and in, the, uh, in Gaza and in the West Bank, how does this play out? Is it just a simple case of one side needs to win and the other side needs to lose? Or do you believe that a two-state solution is actually a realistic possibility? I don't believe a two-state solution is a realistic possibility. Uh, certainly after what happened on October 7th and what has subsequently happened, uh, there's not going to be a two-state solution. What the Israelis are determined to do is create a greater Israel, and that greater Israel includes Gaza, the West Bank and what we used to call Green Line Israel, Israel as it existed before the 1967 war. And the problem that the Israelis face is that there are approximately 7.3 million Israeli Jews in Greater Israel, and there are approximately 7.3 million uh, Palestinians inside of Greater Israel. And that creates huge problems for Israel. Um, because they can't have a meaningful democracy when there are probably uh, slightly more Palestinians than Israeli Jews. And uh, they're unwilling, the Israeli government is unwilling to go to a two-state solution, uh, regardless of what happened on October 7th. But certainly after October 7th, that's not going to happen. So the end result so, But just is to confirm then, I know the current Netanyahu government is not in favor of that, but you don't think it's realistic anyway, a two-state solution. So if, if you're Israel, you wouldn't advise pursuing a two-state solution because you don't think it's feasible because of the, the nature of the antipathy that people in Gaza and the West Bank feel towards Israelis. Is that your position then? I have long been a proponent of a two-state solution, but I have long argued that it was no longer a viable alternative because I thought the Israelis were not interested uh, after uh, uh, Camp David in 2000 in a two-state solution. But now, I think after what's happened, uh, it's almost impossible to conceive of Israel uh, creating a Palestinian state uh, that is right next door uh, to 
Israel. Would you say that it's also impossible to conceive, having witnessed the events of October 7th, of a Palestinian state sitting peacefully side by side with an Israeli state? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think given what's happened on October 7th, relations between the Palestinians and the Israelis, you know, we're talking about both sides here. That's what you're getting have been poisoned to the point where a two-state solution is no longer viable. So what should our goal be, Professor? We're, we're here to try to uh, work out what, what the world should be doing in that region. If the two-state solution you've supported for so long you no longer think is realistic or viable, what's the plan? What should we be trying to do there? I, I have no solution. I think what you're going to end up with is... Uh, more of the same, which is a greater Israel that is an apartheid state. So rather than it being specifically a critique of, of Israel's overreaction, it's it's more a sense that there is no solution here. We're, we're, what we're witnessing is is something that is just going to carry on. These are two separate issues here. The Substack piece that you started with, piece that focuses just on Israel's policy in Gaza, and is a critique of its behavior on moral grounds. And the question of what happens with regard to relations between Israeli Jews and Palestinians is another matter. And on that front, uh, I don't see any viable solution because in theory, there is only one viable solution, which is to give the Palestinians a state of their own. This crisis or this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians can only be solved politically. It can't be solved with military force. And the political solution, theoretically, that works, the only political solution that works, theoretically, is a two-state solution. But as you and I discussed a few minutes ago, uh, that train has left the station. So we're going to continue the status quo, which is a greater Israel that is an apartheid state. And I know it's controversial to refer to Israel as an apartheid state, but Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, B'Tselem, which is the leading human rights organization inside of Israel, all three of these uh, organizations have produced major reports that make it clear that Israel is an apartheid state. And they, in fact, use that language. And by the way, I follow the Israeli press very closely, and it's commonplace for Israeli elites to refer to Israel as an apartheid state. So this is the future that we're dealing with, and uh, it's not going to be pretty moving forward. I guess I'm just surprised that phrases like apartheid state, which are so specific to the South African uh, experience, in other scenarios, I can I could see you being critical of people sloppily applying phrases to other areas that don't correctly apply to them. You know, some of those organizations you listed are, are organizations that you might have been critical of in in other scenarios. Do you? I'm I'm surprised to hear how enthusiastically you embrace the rhetoric of Israel's critics in in those terms. I don't like words like enthusiastically. I think you're sort of setting me up for the kill here. Uh, there's no reason that someone who is a realist like me can't also view the world in moral terms. Uh, and basically, one can argue, uh, as most realists do, that when there is a clash between realist logic and moral logic, 
realist logic dominates. But there are all sorts of cases uh, where the realist logic and the moral logic are lined up and they point in the same direction. And there are other cases where realist logic is not at play and you can make a moral case for doing something. And I want to emphasize that in the early 1990s when the genocide took place in Rwanda, I fully supported American intervention for moral reasons. Uh, there was no realist logic at play in that case, and I thought from a moral point of view, uh, the right thing to do was to intervene. So I think it's important to emphasize, because you're pushing me in the other direction, that realists can think about the world in moral terms, and there's nothing wrong with a realist like me assessing what's going on in Gaza from a moral perspective. And to take this just one step further, you're basically saying I can't talk about Gaza without also talking about what happened uh, on October 7th or talking about other cases like the Russian case. And I don't accept that logic. This is not to say you couldn't do a comparative study, but there's no reason that I can't put my lenses uh, on uh, my analytical lens on uh, what's going on in Gaza and what the Israelis are doing. And there's no reason I can't assess it from a moral point of view. Okay, so to apply similar kind of ideas to the US-Israeli relationship then, because that's something you've written a whole book about. What's your sense of what US as the head of the West's vital interest is in Israel? Is it, do you feel like they are spending too much capital, treasure, reputation in defending Israel, and you'd like to see that reduce? How, characterize that for us. The United States has a special relationship with Israel that has no parallel in modern history. Uh, the United States supports Israel almost no matter what it does. It, it's unconditional support. It's truly remarkable. And all sorts of people have said that there is no equivalent relationship between any two countries in recorded history. So the question is, what is driving this special relationship? What has caused it? And one could argue that it's in America's strategic interest. One could argue that it's in America's moral interest. From an ethical or moral point of view, it makes us it makes sense for us to provide uh, Israel with uh, unconditional support. And as Steve Walt and I argue in the book, you cannot make the argument that supporting Israel unconditionally is in our strategic or in our moral interest. And in fact, what's going on here is that the Israel lobby, which is an extremely powerful interest group in the United States, uh, works over time to push American foreign policy in ways that support Israel at every turn. And as we emphasize in the book, there's nothing immoral or unethical or illegal about this. Interest groups hold enormous amounts of power in the United States, uh, and the Israel lobby is an interest group that has an enormous amount of influence on our policy in the Middle East. To apply it to this the last few weeks, the, the last months since October the 7th, can you not make the case that actually the US has been a restraining influence on Israel? They, they call it the bear hug, where because Israel is so reliant on US support and it is so forthright, at least it was initially in those early days, 
ever since the first few days after October the 7th, it feels like the US has been pulling Israel back, has been requiring them to allow humanitarian interventions. They've been pushing for pauses, delaying the incursion. You can make the case that the US is the force in the whole world that is restraining Israel the most. I don't believe you can make that an argument. Uh, I, I mean, in minor ways, the Americans have, you know, pushed the Israelis to allow some aid to flow into Gaza, but not very much at all. Uh, there are all sorts of reports that basically a huge chunk of the population in Gaza is starving. Uh, and the idea that we have created a situation where the civilian population uh, is getting anywhere near a sufficient amount of food and water uh, and fuel is, and medicine is not a serious argument. The Israelis are doing pretty much what they want, and uh, there's no evidence that we've put meaningful limits on what they can do. So would you like to see the U.S. just more publicly critical? Would you like to see them stopping providing weapons, which might actually pose an existential threat to Israel. I mean, in, in the broader sense, how would you like the U.S. treatment of Israel to change? I would like us to treat Israel like a normal country. And when Israel does things that are in our interest, we should back them. And when they don't, uh, we should not back them. In fact, we should go to great lengths to get them to change their behavior. And I don't think it's in our interest for the Israelis to maintain the occupation. I hope you understand that since at least President Carter's time in office, the United States has pushed forcefully for a uh, two-state solution. Every American president since Jimmy Carter, and including Jimmy Carter, has been in favor of a two-state solution. But the Israelis have not played ball with us. And the principal reason they've been able to get away uh, with largely ignoring our pressure is because of the Israel lobby here in the United States. No president is willing to really coerce Israel in a meaningful way or has been able to coerce Israel in a meaningful way to accept the two-state solution because the political costs would be too great. And that's because the Israel lobby is so powerful. Again, I want to emphasize that there's nothing illegal about this or immoral. It's just the way American politics is played. But you've said in this conversation that you don't think the two-state solution is realistic or viable, in part because of the antipathy that people in Palestine now feel towards Israel. So we can't really blame them then by that logic. You're mixing up time frames, Freddie. We're talking about the past. We're talking about from President Carter up until October 7th fact is that that's a very different situation than the situation that exists after October 7th. Before we were arguing or we were, we were discussing the fact that it's hard to imagine uh, moving toward a two-state solution after October 7th, given the antipathy, if not outright hatred uh, on both sides. But before October 7th, and certainly, you know, in the 1980s and the 1990s and in much of the early 2000s, uh, one could argue that you could get a two-state solution then. Didn't Clinton offer a two-state solution to Yasser Arafat? And he, uh, he turned away at the last minute. No, that's 
not what happened. Uh, in fact, after the breakup of the Camp David discussions in 2000, Arafat and the Palestinians continued to negotiate with the Israelis. The negotiations on a two-state solution between the Barak government, this is Ehud Barak, who was then the Prime Minister of Israel, and Yasser Arafat, who of course headed the Palestinians at the time, uh, didn't end with the end of the Camp David negotiations. They went on. What ended was when Barack left office and Ariel Sharon uh, came into power. I think what happened at Camp David in the latter stages of the Bill Clinton administration was the closest we ever came uh, to making it work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, and, and I just want to emphasize, Professor, we've invited you on here. I'm not trying to pick a fight with you. I know you, you said I, uh, I'm trying to set you up to, for the kill. I'm, I'm sincerely trying to apply realist logic to this situation. And I, and I understand what you say, that your article that you published this morning was more through a moral lens, and that in other scenarios, you're using your realist lens, or you're seeing through your, a more realist lens, trying to apply the realist lens to this situation. I'm just wondering, Israel is reliant on US support. Without it, it couldn't, it would, it would functionally not survive. Is that, would you agree with that statement? Freddie, there's a fundamental problem in how you think about this whole issue. And that is, you think that Hamas is a state and that Israel is a state. And this is a classic case of interstate politics where realism applies. But that's not what's going on here. This is a case where you have a greater Israel 
And Hamas is a group that operates inside of greater Israel. And this is a resistance movement. That's what's going on here. This is not interstate relations. Realism doesn't have a lot to say about relations between Hamas and Israel. You could argue that creating a Palestinian state and thinking about relations between a Palestinian state and Israel would bring realpolitik onto the table because then you'd have two states and you'd have interstate relations. But this is not a case of interstate relations. Hamas is not a state. You said before that you know one could argue that Israel is facing an existential threat. This is not a serious argument. Do you really believe that Hamas is an existential threat to Israel? Well, I think it would be an existential threat if the US dialed down their support to the level you're suggesting. So I think from if Israel, which is a state, is... is... I, I don't believe that's a serious argument. I'm sorry. Israel is a remarkably powerful state. In my opinion, it is militarily the most powerful state in the region. It is the only state that has nuclear weapons. Hamas doesn't even have a state, right? It occupies Gaza, which is part of greater Israel. It's remarkably weak. This is the kind of threat inflation that you get in the West, in places like Britain, where you operate, and places like the United States, where I operate, that are all designed to justify what Israel is doing, right? If they're facing an existential threat, if this is the second coming of the Third Reich, if Hamas fighters are the new Nazis, uh, then you know you can make an argument that what you're doing here is you're killing large numbers of Palestinians to avoid another Holocaust. That's not what's going on here. Hamas is not the Third Reich. They're not an existential threat to Israel. But the surrounding territories, I mean, you're... It sounds like complete, you're unpersuaded by concerns that there could be incursions from the north, from Lebanon, that Iran's influence could grow, that there could be a kind of wider strategic existential threat to Israel. Does that not worry you? That's not a problem. I mean, wh what country is going to invade Israel and threaten its survival? There's no country, Jordan. I don't think so. Egypt, I don't think so. Syria, Iraq, I don't think so. Lebanon, no. Is there a problem with Hezbollah? No, right? I mean, Hezbollah has lots of rockets and missiles, and it could do huge amounts of damage inside Israel if it launched those approximately 150,000 rockets and missiles. There's no question about that. But Hezbollah does not have the capability to invade Israel and conquer any territory uh, and hold on to it. I mean, it's not a serious argument, and nor does Hamas have that capability. To the extent that Israel might face an existential threat in the future, that would be true if Iran were to get nuclear weapons, right? Because Iran and Israel obviously have hostile relations, bitter relations. And one could tell a story about how a conflict between the two of them escalated to the nuclear level. Of course, again, this assumes that uh, Iran has nuclear weapons. But Iran is not a military threat to invade uh, Israel and conquer Israel. And again, you don't want to forget that Israel has nuclear weapons. They are the ultimate deterrent. 
uh, I've yet to see a country that has nuclear weapons disappear from the face of the earth. And I don't think that Israel is going to be the first country that uh, fills the bill on that score. It's just not going to happen. Speaking of countries with nuclear weapons that are not going to disappear from the face of the earth, let's just move back for a moment, if we could, to Russia, Ukraine, because that was what we discussed in detail the last time we had a conversation like this. And I'm just wondering where you think that's got to by way of an update. You were predicting that additional oblasts might be targeted by the Russians to the west of the territory they now control. Do you, do you still think that's a, a likely outcome? Just to step back a bit, Freddie, from uh, uh, talking about the immediate present. Uh, last summer, when we talked, it looked like the Ukrainians were in the driver's seat. And I think throughout most of 2022, uh, the Ukrainians fared very well on the battlefield against the Russians. And by the end of 2022, there was a lot of confidence that Ukraine would prevail in the conflict and the Russians would suffer humiliating defeat. I think what's happened over the course of 2023 is that the balance between the two sides has shifted rather dramatically in Russia's favor. And 2023 has been a good year for the Russians. Uh, and I think the Ukrainians are on the verge of uh, defeat in Ukraine. Uh, Does that mean accepting the current borders and moving towards some kind of ceasefire? Or what, what sort of defeat do you envisage? Well, what I like to talk about is the Russians winning an ugly victory. Uh, they have already annexed Crimea and they have annexed the four oblasts that they by and large control now. I think it's fair to say these are the easternmost four oblasts uh, in uh, Ukraine, and they have no intention of giving those four oblasts back. I believe the Russians will try to conquer four more oblasts, the four oblasts that are immediately to the west of those four oblasts they've already annexed, and that would include, of course, Kharkiv and Odessa. And I think... Um, but not going will, all the way to Kiev, then? Uh, I think they may take uh, the part of Kiev that is on the eastern side of the Dnieper River, but uh, I'm not sure about that. I, I think that contrary to what most people in the West believe, they're not interested in conquering all of Ukraine. I think they'll stay away from Western Ukraine, the Western half of Ukraine, in large part because it's filled with ethnic Ukrainians. And uh, they surely understand that if they were to occupy territory that was filled with ethnic Ukrainians, uh, they would have their hands full. There would be a major insurrection. So I think they'll end up taking somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of Ukrainian territory, number one. And Can I just two, ask on the timeline for that? When, because it feels so much like it's dug in. The, the the front has not moved very dramatically for months and months. It feels almost like this is a stalemate. But you think it's going to start moving westward again, and a new territory will will be conquered by the Russians? I think the fundamental problem in your analysis is that you're focusing on territory as the key indicator of success and. Territory is not the key indicator of success here. What is the key indicator is the casualty exchange ratio. That, that's what really matters. Uh, you want to know, uh, to start with, which side has the larger population? 
because the size of the population influences how many soldiers you have available. Second, you want to look at the balance of artillery because artillery is the weapon that matters the most. It's the real killer uh, in a war of attrition. And then you want to look at what the casualty exchange ratio looks like. In other words, are Ukrainians killing more Russians than Russians are killing Ukrainians or vice versa? And what you see very clearly is that the Russians have about a five to one advantage in manpower. Uh, they have somewhere now between a seven to one and a 10 to one advantage in artillery. And that advantage is growing. And unsurprisingly, the casualty exchange ratio, contrary to the stories that you hear in the mainstream media in Britain, uh, clearly favors the Ukraine, uh, the Russians over the Ukrainians. Wow. So you think, uh, what, are you saying that you think fewer Russians have died than Ukrainians in this conflict? The number I usually use is two to one. I think when all is said and done, we'll see that the ratio is somewhere on the order of three to one or four to one. Uh, in, in the Russians' favor. In other words, I think four or three Ukrainians are dying for every Russian who dies. Do you have any sense of numbers for that? Because, I mean, it, that's so different to what you read in, in, as you call it, the mainstream media. I mean, I've heard numbers like 300,000 total casualties, the overwhelming majority of which are Russian. You'd flip that, would you? Or Yeah, I'd flip that. And, and I, I think the total num number of casualties in not to get too picayunish here, but when we talk about casualties, it's important to emphasize that that's both deaths, right, and wounded. Uh, and uh, but I think the total number of casualties uh, on the Ukrainian side alone is in the area of three hundred thousand, if not more. Uh, and I think when you throw in the Russians. Uh, the number may, the Russians and the Ukrainians together, it may be approaching 500,000 casualties. And, and again, casualties is both wounded uh, and killed. But I believe that the, uh, the Ukrainians uh, ha have suffered far more casualties. And if you just sort of followed, if you have followed carefully how the Ukrainian counteroffensive played out, uh, over the past summer and uh, fall. And remember, it started on June 4th. Uh, it, it was truly stunning and, and kind of sickening, to be honest. I know I'm not allowed to make moral arguments to you. Professor, but you can it, make any arguments you like. <laughs> that kind of sickening to watch the Ukrainians get slaughtered on the battlefields uh, in the face of Russian resistance. And the problem is that the Ukrainian military, right, doesn't have sufficient numbers of soldiers to continue the fight over the long term with the Russians, number one. And number two, we don't have the material to give to the Ukrainians to allow them to continue the fight in some sort of meaningful way. The West is basically out of artillery, both tubes and shells. To which would you add number three, which is that the political will to engage supporting Ukraine in this way has diminished. I mean, we had our foreign secretary, new foreign secretary, David Cameron, coming over to Washington, DC, trying to drum up additional support for Ukraine. What's your reading on, on the kind of Western and particularly American support for Ukraine? Do you think they're going to 
make it last until the election next November, because anything short of that would be a defeat, and then there'll be a change after that? Or do you think we'll see something dramatic happening sooner than that? I find it very hard to predict that the moment uh, where the United States is going on aid to Ukraine, I've argued for the past few months that it's hard to imagine the United States not continuing to fund Ukraine. I mean, we might reduce the amount of uh, money that we give them, but it was very difficult for me to imagine that we would, you know, not give them money now. But if you look at what's happening in the American Congress, it does appear that we're not going to give Ukraine the money that they need. Now, they may cut a deal at the last moment, uh, but I did not think we would be where we are today over the past few months. Uh, but I think regardless of whether we give them more money, the Ukrainians are doomed. They're doomed because they don't have the manpower to continue the fight, and they we don't have the weaponry to give them. We can give them dollars or euros, but they don't need just dollars and euros. They need artillery tubes. They need tanks. They need shells. And we don't have the industrial base in the West. This includes the United States and Europe to supply that military weaponry that they need. And by the way, just to take this one step further, you know, the Zelensky government has been making a lot of noise about a new mobilization. In other words, recognizing how many people they have lost and recognizing the fact that the Russians have mobilized all sorts of troops. What the Ukrainians want to do or what the Zelensky government wants to do is mobilize another huge wave of Ukrainians to replace all of the casualties that have taken place since the summer offense started. But, but Zelensky can't go to a mobilization because the draft dodging inside of Ukraine is so great. There's so many Ukrainians who refuse to serve in the military. They don't want to die. And the end result is that Zelensky and company understand if they try to impose a major league mobilization on the population, it not only won't work, but it'll backfire. There'll be huge resistance. So how does that manifest in actual end results then? I mean, let's, I know we say we're not in the predictions game, but let's, let's fast forward a year. Do you think that we'll, we'll see material differences by a year from now? Do you think some of those oblasts you've identified might be moving into the Russian column? What, if we, if we get you back on the show in a year's time, if you will agree to come on, despite uh, feeling that I was rough with you this morning, um, no, I where don't will we? With me. I, I don't <laughs> okay, so where where do you think we'll be in a year? Where do I think we'll be in a year? You know, it's hard to say with a high level of certainty. I mean, we live in a radically uncertain world. Uh, but my guess is that you will probably have a year from now a frozen conflict. Uh, I, I distinguish between a frozen conflict and a meaningful peace agreement. I don't think. Uh, that you're going to have a meaningful peace agreement uh, involving the Russians on one side and Ukraine on the other. I could tell you what I think uh, 
uh, how I think Ukraine could get a peace agreement. But do you think that frozen conflict will look like the boundaries and the and the front that we're seeing at the moment, or do you think it will have shifted? No, I think it'll shifted uh, further westward. As I said, the, the Ukrainians have now lost four oblasts and Crimea. The Russians have annexed these four oblasts and Crimea and they've made it clear they're not giving them back. And I think the Russians will go to great lengths uh, to capture four more oblasts and then to make sure, and this is very important, Freddie, to make sure that Ukraine remains a dysfunctional rump state so that it cannot join either the EU or NATO. See, here's the basic problem that the Russians face. If they were to freeze the status quo on the ground, right, they cannot be sure that Ukraine and the West at some point won't restart the war. So the Russians understand that they have the upper hand now. And given that they have the upper hand and they can't trust the West and they can't trust Ukraine not to try to take back territory that Russia has conquered. That means the Russians have an incentive in taking back much more territory or taking much more territory now, number one, and number two, doing everything possible to weaken Ukraine over the long term. So it's not a threat to attack Russia. I have two more quick questions to throw at you, Professor, and then I'm going to let you get on with your no doubt busy day. First one, if Donald Trump wins the elections in roughly a year from now, what do you think happens in Ukraine? I think that if Trump gets elected, he will be inclined to pull American troops out of Europe and put an end uh, to NATO. I mean, I think it was quite clear when he was elected in 2016 and then when he took office in January 2017, that number one, he wanted to have good relations with Russia, as you remember. He liked Vladimir Putin, uh, and he also does not like NATO and does not like uh, our European allies and, and would like to get out of Europe. So I think there will be a powerful push on his part to do that. And you want to remember that- You think literally leaving NATO, the US leaving NATO, I mean, I guess NATO would just cease to exist at that point. Yeah, you take the United States out of Europe and NATO effectively ceases to exist. Uh, I, I think that Trump, let me put it this way, I think Trump will be powerfully inclined to move in that direction. Now, the $64,000 question is whether he can do that or not. And in Ukraine, do you think that means, I mean, he's talked, oh, I'm going to do a peace deal within 24 hours. His critics call that a surrender deal. You know the arguments on both sides. Do you think it would happen? You think he'll get on a plane to Moscow or invite Vladimir Putin and say, let's do a deal and end this? What, what, what's your prediction there? No. Vladimir Putin doesn't trust any American or European leader, and nor should he. He should not trust them. You can't trust the word of any American president. Putin. Well, what about uh, Russian presidents? Should anyone be trusting... Vladimir Putin. But that's irrelevant for the question that's on the table. Right. That, that's irrelevant. M my answer is no. And here my realism comes to play. You know, Donald, uh, excuse me, Ronald Reagan used to say, trust but verify. 
right? Basically what Reagan was saying, you really can't trust another leader. What you have to do is you have to verify that they are doing what they have promised they will do. Uh, and the fact is that there is no reason for the Russians to trust uh, the Americans or the Europeans. And I agree with you. There's no reason for the Europeans and the Americans to trust Vladimir Putin. Okay. They shouldn't do that. So no no uh, sort of photo opportunity moment between Putin and Trump where they uh, carve up Ukraine and decide to end the slaughter. We're not going to we're not going to see that. Final question. Do you think there might be some new actor in the Ukraine story that might enter I'm thinking China for example, Middle Eastern powers that somehow use this as an opportunity to emerge as peacekeepers, as emerge as in, if the US is considered too partisan, too much a member of one side, Russia would not do anything that was NATO or UN supervised. Do you think there's any chance of a surprise new entrant in some kind of ceasefire supervision? No. Uh, and there are two reasons for that. First of all, uh, your question sort of implies that someone from outside would have enough power, enough influence to sort of coerce the two sides to reach some sort of agreement. And the reason that you would need coercion is the fact is that the Ukrainians and the Russians have irreconcilable differences. Just think about it. On the territory issue, the Ukrainians are unwilling to surrender huge chunks of their territory to the Russians. The Russians are unwilling to give that territory up. How do you square that circle? Furthermore, the Russians insist that Ukraine cannot be part of NATO. Indeed, they insist that there can be no meaningful security ties between the West and Ukraine. Ukraine insists that it has to have a security guarantee from the West. How do you square that circle? And the answer is you don't square either circle. So the idea that a country like China, which is the second most powerful state in the system, could come in and impose some sort of agreement or coerce both sides into accepting some sort of agreement is not in the cards. I was more thinking referee than coercion. I was thinking someone that both sides might sort of accept could and you can only be a meaningful referee if there's a basis for agreement. And what I'm telling you is there's no basis for agreement here. But I'll take this one step further. If you're the Chinese and you're thinking about the war in Ukraine, you quickly come to the conclusion that the ideal situation from a Chinese perspective is not to settle the war, but to let the war go on and on and on. Because it keeps the Americans pinned down in Europe and it makes it difficult for the Americans to fully pivot to Asia, which is in China's interest. And furthermore, it continues to push the Russians into the arms of the Chinese, which is an ideal situation from Beijing's point of view. So I would argue if you're playing Beijing's hand, you have a vested interest in not settling the conflict in Ukraine, but allowing it to go on and on and on, because in effect, the United States has shot itself in the foot, and that is causing all sorts of problems for 
purposes of pivoting to Asia. And just to go back to where we started, the same thing is true with Gaza. The United States is now pinned down in the Middle East, worrying about horizontal escalation, other countries coming into the fight, and it is pinned down in Ukraine. And the fact that we're pinned down in these two different theaters makes it difficult for us to deal with trouble in Asia or in East Asia. This is in China's interest. So I don't see China solving this problem. Professor Mearsheimer, we are time up. Thank you so much for your time this morning. As always, fascinating, stimulating, and uh, leaves us with new sets of questions. We talked at the start of the show about maybe you coming to Europe and us having another in-person conversation. We would love that. I would love that. Thank you for having me on, Freddie. I thoroughly enjoyed our back and forth. That was Professor John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago, world-famous realist and foreign policy scholar. As always, he was provocative, varied, interesting, leaving new ideas, further grounds for study and exploration. And the thing I appreciate most is that sunshiny disposition, despite his incredibly dark and in some cases very bleak worldview. Thanks to John Mearsheimer. Thanks to you for joining. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.